just get up? Just a little bit ago. I I, wor- I went to bed at about 7 o'clock. I saw that you were up because it said that you were active three hours ago when I got mm-hmm. on. And I thought, oh, no, no. it was more than that. But anyhow, I'm good. You're good? So I am. This, I don't know if I told you this. This is the first episode of a new series, uh, part of Speaking of Young, where I interview interesting friends of mine. Because Speaking of Young, I've kept it uh, interviews with Jungian analysts. But sure. I'm getting tired of that, to be honest with you. And I have so many people that I'm so interested in. And you're always at the top of my list. And so you're the first in the new series. What do you think of that? Well, I'm in Aries. I like being the first. You like it. But 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 quite frankly, uh-huh. if I like the situation, I wouldn't mind being the second, the third, or the last. It doesn't matter. But there you go. but but first has a nice ring to it. Has a nice ring to it. So sometimes I read the intro with my guest right here so that I don't have to record it later and then sure. kind of splice it in. But sometimes that that doesn't go well. I don't I don't want to keep people waiting if I don't get I don't, it right. I don't mind I don't mind at all. You We're don't good. mind at all. And you know Not what I thought since this is going to be kind of a more of a looser conversation, uh, more candid and explicit, we can swear and generally unedited. I thought you could jump in while I read the intro and correct me if I'm wrong or add something. No no or, problem, but or, I, but 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 I I never fucking swear. I heard you swear, and that's why I thought, you know what? Let's swear on the new series. Because honestly, with speaking of Jung, I'm pretty buttoned up, and that is not my personality. I mean, it it isn't. And I, like I said, I'm growing a little tired of that. So I'd like to be myself a little bit more here, and I'm having a little coffee. How about you? Are you drinking anything? I'm having green tea, and I'm a. Um, espresso every day uh, in the, when I when I right. wake up, and I have not had uh-huh. any coffee for about for as long as I've been semi isolated for for a little bit over a month. I've not had any coffee, and it's good. I was, I'm okay with that. You feel good, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've done that before. I've gone off it, and right now I'm doing the bulletproof coffee with the grass fed unsalted butter and the yeah. coconut oil. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, I've always wanted to do that because, you know, my my Tibetan friends drink butter tea. So I've had butter tea. And so the thought of butter coffee wasn't that repulsive to me. So no. And and personally, anything, anything that can be used as a delivery system for coconut oil or butter is good in my world. Oh, okay, great. (laughs) So there might be some things in the intro. I wrote this that aren't 100% 100% correct, and, and I want it to be correct. So please jump mm-hmm. in if there's anything that isn't sure. quite right. Okay, so here I go. All right. Here's my opening. This is Laura London, and you're listening to the first episode of the new quarantine edition of Speaking of Young. In this new series, I'll be recording informal discussions with my friends on their areas of expertise. These talks will be candid, explicit, and unedited. My first guest is my friend, Rick Levine. Rick Merlin Levine is a professional astrologer, columnist, and speaker located in the outskirts of Seattle, Washington. He has been practicing astrology since 1976 and is a living legend in the global astrological community. 
He is past president of the Washington State Astrology Association and is a founding trustee of the Kepler College of Astrological Arts and Sciences. Originally a four-year liberal arts college located in Seattle, it was the only school of its kind to award degrees in astrology. Along with his late partner, Jeff Jower, he is the co-founder of StarIQ.com, home of his daily audio Planet Pulse and the daily Planet IQ. It continues to be a rich repository of articles written by professional astrologers. For 17 years, Rick wrote a daily horoscope column delivered via the internet to millions of readers per day through tarot.com. He is the co-author of eight annual mass market astrology books for Barnes & Noble and is the subject of the Jay Widener movie Quantum Astrology, Science, Spirit, and Our Place in the Cycles of History. I appeared live with Rick on Richard C. Hoagland's The Other Side of Midnight radio program on the evening before the total solar eclipse of 2017. We were each located on the path of totality, Rick reporting in from the West Coast and myself from the East Coast. The following year, we finally met in the middle during the huge once-a-decade United Astrology Conference held here in Chicago. Later that year, Rick was awarded the prestigious International Astrologer of the Year Award by the Krishnamurti Institute of Astrology in Calcutta, India. And on a recent lecture tour to Istanbul, he was awarded the coveted Formal Hut Award for Astrological Excellence by the Turkish School of Astrology. Rick's YouTube videos reach tens of thousands of people each month. His monthly forecast episodes are filmed in front of a live audience at the Soul Food Coffee House in Redmond, Washington, on the first Wednesday of the month. You can watch them for free anytime on his YouTube channel. Rick lectures on astrology around the world, holding annual conferences in Bali and Costa Rica, and is available for private consultations. Our talk today is being recorded. Our talk is being recorded on Wednesday, April twenty second, two thousand twenty, through the magic of Skype. Rick, you didn't jump in anywhere. <laughs> no, I've I've gone to sleep. Was no, all was of fine. that right, or was it boring? No, it was it was all fine. Um, one correction, which probably isn't important, mm -hmm. and that is that the uh, Soul Food Coffee House lectures are A, now on hold because of quarantine, yeah. and B, are now the last Wednesday of every month rather than the first. Okay. But I wouldn't go back and change that. Okay, okay. So you're still doing the monthly forecast. You're just doing it from your studio now at home. Exactly. Yeah. I love that studio. I've seen photos of it, and um, it's just as magical as your name. Why do you use – is so wait, Merlin is your middle name, right? Well, it actually is, and uh, I was born Richard Michael Levine, and all through my youth, I never, ever signed my name Michael. I never used it. Yeah. I, I like it for other people. I never, it was just never my name. I was always Rick M. or Richard M. Levine. And then on a divorce about 25 years ago, God, has it really been that long? Um, 
in most states in the divorce proceedings, there is a provision for the woman to reclaim her maiden name so you can change your name with no court court fee. And I took that opportunity because uh, both friends and associates online in the world of astrology and in the world of computer consulting, which I was doing a lot of through the uh, 80s, late 80s and early 90s, um, everyone called me Merlin and I identified with it. And so I just changed my name legally from Michael to Merlin. Mm -hmm. And so I am technically and legally on my passport and driver's license, Richard Merlin Levine. And it's just something that's always fit. I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I was about, oh, I think I was about seven or eight years old the first time I saw Disney's Fantasia mm. and the music, The Night on Bear Mountain, where Mickey Mouse plays uh, the wizard's apprentice and yeah. makes the dancing brooms happen. I saw that. I was entranced and I said, tranced. And I said, that's what I want to be when I grow mm. up. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. And so I don't know, just as an aside, so Jung was really into Merlin and a couple episodes about it, a couple episodes ago, Dennis Merritt talked a lot about it. Um, ah. And he, yeah, he was kind of in touch with Merlin the most on his lake, at his lake house on, okay. As soon as I said I wasn't going to edit this, I just, I'm still not going to edit this. Bowling in his house on the lake, Lake Zurich, where he carved the square stone. I sent you yes. those photos the other day. Yeah. So yeah. he most associated that place with Merlin. I've, of course, loved Merlin my whole life. And there was a bookstore, a metaphysical bookstore. Remember those? Uh, I do. Right. So there was one in Taos, New Mexico. It closed. Um, it went out of business. And it was called Merlin's Garden. And it was the most magical little bookstore I had ever experienced. And I was heartbroken when it closed. And thankfully, um, you know, every time you buy a book, they give you a bookmark. So I have all these original Merlin's Garden bookmarks. And I have a Merlin thing that's like a light switch plate cover that was made by this Italian um, artist in Taos. And so I see it. It's for my kitchen light switch. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah. And then there's you. So tell us about what do you want to talk about, first of all? Well, uh, I want to talk about everything in the universe from yeah. fr from the tiniest little subatomic um, particles in in atoms to the uh, realization that astronomers just discovered that there were not millions of other galaxies, but billions, orders of magnitude more than they ever thought before. And so, um, and so, I'm 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 good to talk about anything from. Um, as Roger Penrose, the British mathematician, physicist would say, from the very small to the very large. That's interesting you mentioned that. A couple of reasons why. the There was a special on the Science Channel about 30 years of the Hubble telescope. And they're replaying it if anybody wants to catch it. The photos that they were showing and explaining were breathtaking of how gal how and where galaxies are actually formed and how Hubble is kind of a time machine because it's looking back billions of light years away. So, I mean, and that means that it took billions of years for that light to reach us. 
where we can detect it. So we're really kind of looking back in time. So that fascinates me. And another thing is, one of the things I love about you, and and I just want to tell everybody a little bit of the history. So when I first got a laptop computer, this was in the 1990s. And I we had dial-up connections back then. And I would sit at my kitchen table with my laptop plugged in because that's where it could reach the phone jack mm-hmm. for my dial-up. And I would go to stariq.com and tarot.com. And those are your websites. I mean, you started stariq.com and I found so many articles there, um, articles that you can still search for, um, written by Courtney Roberts Conrad about sports and astrology that I still use. She said they're outdated, but yeah, anyway, they all, are. All, all of that is still there, which I love. And you, with your YouTube videos, which came much later on, the monthly forecast is so important to me because you would go over the astrology of the month, the coming month, but you would also mention other things. And I would get stopped in my tracks so many times because you would say something that I had never heard before or was so profound or some obscure reference. So I love your work. And it I, I like I mentioned in the intro, we were actually on the same show because we have a mutual friend, Richard C. Hoagland, and I was shocked to know that you knew him because I started listening to Richard back in the 90s. How do you know Richard? <laughs> well, speaking of time machines, mm-hmm. um, of which um, that is actually a topic that we could at some time, not today, spend a whole hour or so delving into um, because I am one who... Um, I mean, my whole world has been in trying to understand the nature of time. And um, my friend Fred Allen Wolf wrote a book called The Physics of Time Travel. And time isn't quite what it appears to be. And yes, we can travel um, through time. And the Hubble telescope is an example of a time machine. It's just like in the in the past when when we thought of robots in the future, um, no one quite imagined them the way they are today. But every time you get on the telephone and go into an automated system, you're basically talking to a robot. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they don't have to look humanoid. And so a time machine isn't necessarily what we think it is either. And astrology is actually a time machine because with astrology, we get to dial backwards or forward. Now, having said that, um, I initially met Richard Hoagland in the early 90s. I'm thinking it was about 93, maybe, somewhere around there, um, and got to be pretty good friends with him. And he would come to Seattle often. At that time, there was a weekly or then actually a nightly for a while radio show uh, called The Laura Lee Show. And Laura Lee was one of the um, early radio pioneers into consciousness studies. Um, and uh, and I was a very regular guest on Laura's show, uh, as was Richard. And when he came to Seattle, he and I often hung out together. Mm-hmm. And it's a long and involved story. But yes, uh, between um, Richard Hoagland and a number of people that he knows through Laura Lee and elsewhere, um, we have, you know, very much entwined 
um, uh, yeah, a, a long and complicated um, yes. uh, path. Sure yeah, everything with Richard is no, but you and I wound up on that show the yeah. night before the eclipse. So I was visiting family in Charleston, South Carolina, and. I don't think they'll be listening to this episode, but the reason why I went to go visit them, yeah, because they're on the path of totality and right. Chicago, what where I live, is was not on totality yeah. and also yeah. you can't trust the Chicago weather. Yep. So I was in Charleston and you were in Oregon? I was in central Oregon, actually. Um, one of the largest gatherings for the eclipse was a festival that I was about 10 miles from. I was actually at a, a friend um, owns a substantial, um, er, uh, a large, uh, I think several hundred acres of uh, organic herb uh, okay. farm. Um, and, um, and I was there with about 20 people um, at, this, at this herb farm and it was a very beautiful setting. Mm. And um, I, I actually spend time in, in near there in central Oregon at a place called Brighton Bush Hot Springs, oh, where I right. teach every every couple times every year. Okay. And I had been there just three weeks, two and a half weeks prior to the um, it, to the eclipse, and that's right around when the Oregon fires had started. Uh, and the night before the eclipse, when we talked, even though the eclipse the following day was absolutely magnificent, perfectly mm -hmm. clear sky, not a cloud from horizon to horizon. Really? Um, and I got some amazing photographs and actually a, um, a very high definition video of the actual eclipse that was just gorgeous. But um, even more memorable than the eclipse was the fires on the hills, on the mountains the night before it was absolutely frightening. Because, I mean, lots of or people have no idea how much of Oregon burned. Oh. Um, um, and um, and so for me, the eclipse was a combination. Um, I had taught at Brighton Bush Hot Springs, like I said, two about two and a half weeks prior. And I was there for a, a week. And the first couple of days there, it was absolutely gorgeous. And by the time I left, there was so much smoke that you couldn't oh, even see across no. the little meadow in the, you know, at the at the facility there. It was it was it was quite frightening. So but yes, we we did speak that night, and that eclipse was there was the second of now three total eclipses that I experienced. I I was um, in uh, Indonesia and in the in Asia for four months this early late last year, early this year, and I was able to. Um, go to Singapore, which was totality on an eclipse that happened on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas. Okay. And so that was my third total eclipse that I've experienced. They are pretty magical. Although the Vedic astrologers, the Hindus, uh, caution you from going out in eclipse. They say you should hide in your cave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what is the significance uh, astrologically of an eclipse? Not the astronomy of it, but astrologically, yeah. yeah. Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of things in astrology that get handed down to us from the past. And I'm one of those astrologers that take all of those things that come to us from the past with a grain of salt. Um, the ancient world was a different, very different place than the modern world. Right. And I'm not saying that ancient and traditional astrology isn't useful and valid. And much of what we moderners do comes from those traditions. And there are many techniques that are incredibly powerful. Um, but the ancients had a lot of fear around eclipses. Right. 
uh, because they were unknown. And and it was uh, it was frightening sure. when the sun went out in the middle of the day and the, and you could see stars. It was dark, and um, uh, but eclipses are a a a um, what's the right word? They're a, 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 an unusual, surprising shift in the energy. Um, look, an eclipse occurs at the new moon and full moon, and astrologically, new moons and full moons are dynamic. An eclipse is kind of like a new moon or full moon on steroids. Um, it's it, because the new, the moon gets gradually lighter for two weeks and gradually darker for two weeks as it goes from new to full back to new. And it's almost like at the eclipse time, it's like the, the light that, that, that had been gradually um, getting brighter for two weeks at the moment of the eclipse, it's like someone grabs a hold of the cosmic light switch and turns it off and on, <laughs> and which is like impossible. Mm -hmm. And yet it's often a time shift itself. I think of it as a polarizing factor. And it often has to do with a shift, a shift in the energy. Um, in fact, the ancients would say at a solar eclipse, the king must die. And it's really a metaphor for those things that have gotten too out of whack, too out, too far out of control one way or another. There's a polarization factor and something shifts. Um, and so they often do seem to have um, a change in dynamics, a change in leadership, um, and and eclipses are very useful in astrology, but they're also tied to the magic of how the whole solar system works. Because at times of a solar eclipse, um, I don't know if you got this at the one that you saw, but you can actually feel how you can see, you can perceptually absorb how fast everything is moving up there. Mm -hmm. And so would you say that that we called it the great American eclipse at the time, the one in no, the you, wait, wait, you say we did, you did. We I laugh. <laughs> that, that, that was Hollywood's, okay. that was Hollywood's name for it. That, it was, us here it was, in, that we're so kind of egocentric where we think the United States is the center of the world. Um, but well, it was the center of that eclipse. Uh, but but the thing is, is that um, we tend to give names to things now, you know, um, that are Hollywoodish names. And it was an eclipse. There are, you know, there there are typically um, four to five eclipses every year: two solar, two lunar, and sometimes an extra one, um, depending just on how uh, on how everything falls. But that one went coast to coast. It. Did, it, and that was the unusual. whole U.S. Yeah, it, it started on the West Coast and ended up on the East Coast, and the whole thing went across the United States, and um, and right in the path of the eclipse were the worst wildfires that have ever occurred in the Northwest, maybe in the United States, at least right? in modern history. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it was also tied up with. Um, the whole strange political state that the United States seems to be in. Um, I mean, that was part of it, although there were many astrologers that were um, predicting on that eclipse that the, that the king would fall, that right. there would be a change. And yet somehow these times that we live in are even there. It, it reminds me of Niels Bohr, who once said that quantum physics wasn't stranger than you think. 
it's stranger than you can think. Mm. And I feel that way these days about the uh, global political scene, particularly here in the United States. Well, well, so now what would you say to that, that the eclipse is supposed to symbolize these things? And some people say, well, nothing happened. Yeah, well, that's if if the universe was mechanical, it sure would make all uh, um, analysis, cause and effect relationships and prediction a lot simple. The fact of the matter is the universe is organic. It's not mechanical. And we look for meaning from the stars, from the cosmos. And meaning can be found, but it's not a one-to-one causal relationship. One of the great battles that I feel like I I, um, fight in the astrology community itself is that I always hear people going, um, blah, 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 blah. Oh, well, that means so-and-so, you know, or, um, or something happens. Well, Uranus is change. Well, Mars is war. Mm -hmm. No, these planets aren't these things. These planets are archetypes. Thank you, Jung, for that whole concept Mm -hmm. of symbolic representation. And so um, astrology is not reality. It's simply one map. And from that standpoint, um, it eludes uh, our desire to map things one-to-one. Things do not map one-to-one. And even if we think we know what's going on by using astrology, Um, we forget that for thousands of years, the ancients used the sun and the moon and seven planets. And then we discovered, um, you know, the first new planet that was discovered was, was not Uranus. It was Ceres. Ceres was discovered and assumed to be a planet. Mm -hmm. And then Juno. And then, oh my God, there's lots of these things. They can't be planets. And then Uranus and then Neptune, and then Pluto, and then all of a sudden there were so many other things. NASA tracks over a half a million objects going around the sun. There are over 10,000 asteroids that have actual names. Um, We can't imagine the complexity of how much stuff is out there. And to think that by using astrology and and, and identifying maybe the um, seven or 10 or 20 largest rocks Mm -hmm. or particles, if you will, that are going around the sun, that we know everything, we, we don't. There is more unknown than known, although astrology is certainly a brilliant metaphor and mapping system to understand how the external and the internal are exactly one and the same. It's not like it's not like what's up there makes us do this and that. It's that the internal microcosm and the external macrocosm are actually Um, uh, mirror illusions of how waves intersect in our own consciousness. We are, we are surfers mm -hmm. that, and we're surfing this wave of time, um, but we're like caught in the middle. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because no, because um, now I forgot what I was going to (laughs) say. Oh my God. What I wanted to talk about was free will. I am, and since I started studying astrology, I'm obsessed with transits. I want to know what transits are coming up, what transits are happening now, what they mean. And if we have free will, which I don't think we do, then how do you explain how, I don't know how to put this into words. For instance, 
the planet Uranus right now is transiting through Taurus. I have a Sun-Venus conjunction in Taurus in the eighth house. Uranus is slowly moving toward it. I know that when Uranus hits that Sun, uh, did I say Sun-Taurus, Sun-Venus conjunction? Yeah, Sun-Venus conjunction. Sun-Venus conjunction in Taurus. Uh To expect something unexpected, etc., etc. Everything that you read about Uranus transits. So I was wondering how you would explain astrology and free will. Oh, I can do this in my sleep. In fact, this was the subject. You had mentioned that I was awarded the International Astrologer of the Year Award from the Krishnamurti Institute in Calcutta. I was one of about 40 um, Western astrologers that joined about 30 uh, Hindu Vedic um, uh, astrologers at a school in Calcutta that has graduated thousands and thousands of students. I mean, that just really? dwarfs our idea of what, you know, what, what astrology is in the West. And, um, and the conference was a little bit like a TED conference, meaning that every speaker had one half hour, okay. uh, plenary session. It was all done together. And so it was like five days of half hour talks. And, um, and, my award that I was given at the end of the conference was basically for the um, for the outstanding talk of the conference. Mm-hmm. And my talk was on a quantum perspective on the paradox of fate and free will. Mm. And so this is something, that, and and of course it may be on one level it takes a bit of um, um, audacity um, or hubris to go to India and to tell them about fate <laughs> and free will, but that didn't stop me, and I did it in a way that was not I was not a Westerner coming in and telling them I know more. Mm-hmm. I was giving a perspective. I had. Um, I had people coming up to me afterwards, um, uh, Indian um, natives, East East Indian, India, the country um, natives, mm-hmm. um, come up to me afterwards and say things like uh, this one man who had to be 10 years my senior um, who said, I've been practicing astrology since my early 20s and I've puzzled over the question that you dealt with today every day of my life and I'll never puzzle it over, I'll never puzzle over it again. You explained it. I, I, I just want to thank you. Wow. And, um, and, and the explanation, which I can do, uh, I, I can do it in an hour and a half. I can do it in a half an hour, and I'm going to do it in a short paragraph. Okay. But understand that that we are, as Nietzsche said, um, Nietzsche said that um, what he wrote, um, his aphorisms were like men for tall. They were for men with tall legs. Tall men with long legs who could walk from mountaintop to mountaintop. So we're not taking the trip down here in through the valley through all the complexity. We're just going to look at the tip of the iceberg. And it's basically this. Most people think of planets as rocks in space. You go out at night, you look at the moon and you can see it. It's a, it's a crescent moon or a full moon, but it's, but it's, but it's a particle up there. Saturn, Jupiter, Jupiter, a huge particle, Mm -hmm. but these things are all lumps of matter. The fact of the matter is that the fact of the matter (laughs) um, is that the question of whether light is 
matter or vibration has puzzled scientists for um, uh, at least a couple of millennia. Uh, a couple of millennia, yeah, two of them, millennia. Um, and, and, and we have gone back and forth thinking that light is vibration, no light is particle. And of course, it was Einstein who um, absolutely uh, clearly theorized and demonstrated how light had to be packets of energy, that there were photons, and yet we can still measure light as traveling as waves. And modern physicists call this the particle wave duality, that that um, subatomic um, uh, things, or maybe there are no things, uh, they propagate, they travel like waves, like, like, like waves in water. Um, they travel like waves through something, ether, something, air, something that's there or not there. And yet when we measure them, for the moment of measurement, they become a particle. But then somehow they continue to travel like a wave and exhibit wave properties. Well, it's my observation that the same is true at the macrocosmic level than at the microcosmic level. Um, you know, the, the Emerald Tablet, which most people know as the source for the adage, as above, so below, forget about the second part of that adage. And it's as above, so below, the within of things is as the without of things. The within and the without are the same. And so if that's true, quantum physics, the, the physics that have shot us out of the world of Newtonian particle physics cause and effect certainty and left us in this world of uncertainty where, where, where the causal relationships are not quite as linear as we thought. Think here just for a moment about, um, you know, about Wolfgang Pauli and, and um, Carl Jung's synchronicity. Um, but all of a sudden, uh, physicists were dealing with the fact that cause and effect weren't what they thought they were. Things seemed to happen, um, not necessarily according to our laws of cause and effect, and that quantum physics came up with the idea, with the notion um, that uh, the, of what we call the particle wave duality, that things are at the same time both a particle and a wave, mm -hmm. and it depends upon whether we perceive it. The act of perception, um, as Fred Wolf would say, collapses the quantum wave function, and the wave for the moment that we perceive it becomes a particle. Now, I would suggest that this exact same phenomenon happens at the macrocosmic level. We think of the moon as a large lump of matter in space, but it's also the observational archetype of a 13 cycle per year frequency. It's a wave. Mm -hmm. All the planets are waves. Planet waves are a very real thing. A Saturn wave happens at three cycles through just a little bit over three cycles a century. The moon is a wave at 13 cycles a year. Pluto is a wave at four cycles a millennium, approximately. All these are approximate. So, so planets themselves exhibit the particle wave duality. Now, what I would say is this, that fate is to particle as free will is to wave. Okay. And what that means is, according to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, Heisenberg won the, was awarded the Nobel Prize in physics 
for his understanding of the inverse relationship between particle and wave, meaning that at any given moment, the more you knew about where something was, the less you knew about where it was going. The more you knew about particle, the less you knew about wave. And I would say that fate and free will hold that exact same relationship. Hmm. Explain how you view transits then. If you're doing a consultation on someone's natal chart and they ask you about upcoming transits. Right. Let's back up for a second. Okay. And for those people who may not be astrologically um, right. enabled, um, a transit is simply the movement of a planet in the current moment or in a moment of time, whereas we each hold a position of where the planets were when we were born at the moment of our birth it's like it's like a the universe takes a snapshot of the um, of the energy of the planetary locations at the moment we were born and that map becomes in a way a metaphor a symbol for how the um, light energy is tied up into matter in our in our lives how we hold a shape through our entire life and transits as the planets that move through time continue to move through time actually impact our natal uh, our birth planets and therefore when we talk about natal um, astrology we're talking about the who you who who is who is Laura um, because there are no physical cells in your body that are there today that were there when you were born. So what is Laura? Well, Laura, it turns out, and Rick, it turns out, are we are shapes of gravitationally trapped light that is kind of held into a non-perceptible non -perceptible, um, uh, shape like a crystal. But the crystal is not just our physicality. So to me, um, transit astrology is like is like using a map. If I were to give you a map of the United States, it wouldn't tell you um, where you are on the map and it wouldn't tell you where you are going. But if you were driving to visit me to hang out in, in, in Merlin's cave, then if you were driving from Chicago um, to the outskirts of Seattle, um, you could use a map and that map would basically help you understand the intersections that you would encounter as you drove from Chicago to Seattle, but it wouldn't tell you what was going to happen at any of those intersections. Mm -hmm. Those, what happens at an intersection um, would be an act of free will. Now, if you're going 70 miles an hour and you hit an intersection, chances are you're not going to make a sharp left turn, meaning that we can't just hit an intersection and go in a direction unless we either are preparing for it, are aware of it, or if some outside force kind of catches us off guard or some opportunity comes along. Transits are a combination of fate and free will. Um, fate is what happens to you from the outside. Free will is what you do to respond to that act of fate. Now, here's where something like yoga comes into the picture, because there are many practices we can do, um, some of them conscious, some not, some spiritual, some not, that basically gives us more choice when we hit one of these intersection points. 
they're, they're, you know, your choices. Uh, a man named George Kelly wrote a book in the, mm, I think probably in the late 50s, um, called A Theory of Personality. He was a practicing um, psychologist, therapist. Um, and George Kelly's theory of personality basically said that when we make choices in life, we're limited by the worldview that we have. Whatever our worldview is basically gives us a container within which we get to make choices. And he and his point was that as a therapist, your job was to um, alter or expand a patient's worldview so that that at any given moment and at major moments of decision that the patient or client had more choices. Now, this is something that's obvious, but we don't normally think about in those terms. If we are hitting an intersection and we don't even know that there's a choice to be made, we won't make it. But or here's, if we but think, here's my wait, let me just jump in here. But here's, absolutely, yeah. But here's my thing: if I'm driving from Chicago to Redmond and I'm at a particular intersection in Montana, there are only so many options I have. So exactly. to me, right? But so to me, how is that free will when? It's not free. It's not anything. It's limited by where I am and what what the situation warrants. Abs- absolutely. I'm not saying that that free will trumps um, – I hate to use that word. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that free will um, uh, trumps fate. I'm saying that there is an inverse relationship and that any given moment in your life – uh, the more free will that you have <clears throat> to exert, the less fate there is. I mean, I, I think it was, you know, our boy Jung who basically said that, you know, when we're when we're um, uh, when we're responding to the result of unintegrated parts of our own unconsciousness, it seems like fate. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The, the the thing is that yes, at any intersection, our choices are limited. But there are some intersections where we have a lot more choices than we think we do, but we don't get to make the choice at the time we hit the intersection. We get to make the choice every day, every, every hour of our life for weeks, for months, for years prior to that intersection. Mm-hmm. And if we don't do the proper asanas, postures, and I don't mean just the postures that we would do if we were practicing yoga. I mean, if we don't do the actual mental preparation, the spiritual preparation, if we don't expand our minds enough to know what's going on, we'll get to that intersection and we won't even know that we had a choice. Okay. So, so, so I actually believe that, that if, if you were my client and I saw that you were actually were, were coming up to a transit of Uranus, which is a once every 84 year, Uranus is an 84 year cycle. Mm -hmm. And as we astrologers have observed the function of Uranus, it appears that Uranus is often related to, um, to shocks, to surprise, to unexpected things. And I love the paradox of the astrologer's um, um, adage, expect the unexpected. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, what the hell is that about? (laughs) How can you expect the unexpected if it's unexpected? The thing is this, Uranus, so, so up until the discovery of Uranus, Saturn 
was the limit, the boundary. Saturn was the limit of perception. In fact, Saturn um, is is um, etymologically Saturn is 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 the limit. It's Saturn is Satan. It's the it's the gate through which light falls, including Lucifer, and becomes manifest in three dimensions. Saturn and this the Greeks knew this. They their their mythology um, around Saturn was the gatekeeper of reality. So when Uranus was discovered. <clears throat> in the um, late 18th century, um, our reality was shattered. All of a sudden, we realized that the limits of what we thought we had were not limits, that the little solar system that we live in all of a sudden tripled in size overnight. And it was shocking. Well, Uranus is electrical. It's like lightning. And Uranus often is shocking. But here's the thing, Laura, a shock can only occur if there's polarity, if there's tension. And most of us carry an enormous amount of tension in the relationship between, going back to Jung, in the relationship between the opposites, you can call those opposites good and evil, you can call them male and female, you can call them day and night, you can call them yin and yang, but the tension between opposites, when it's great, what happens is that we bury one side of the opposite um, of the tug of war and we express the other and the buried side becomes unconscious, whether we, whether we bury it consciously, which would be an act of suppression, or whether we bury it unconsciously, we don't even know we're doing it, which would be repression. In either case, when a Uranus transit happens, those tensions, which are most buried, most hidden, um, are like, they're like um, lightning rods for reality to shock us, to show us both sides of the buried tension. So to say that, um, that, that the, our fate is to experience the unex, you know the unexpected is only for those people um, and we all have areas in our life which are which are unconscious mm-hmm. um, and so Uranus is going to bring those things into the open now we can go through life fearing that moment uh, because we don't like the unexpected um, especially if we happen to be a Taurus which likes things to be stable because Taurus is, um, of all the signs in the Zodiac, is a um, stable Earth sign. It's fixed Earth, to use uh, the, the full metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is that that the free will side of this is how do I, in the weeks, months, and years prior to that Uranus transiting my natal sun or natal sun in Venus, how do I work on bringing those things which I fear the most out into the open? I think of uh, Joseph Campbell, who said, the cave we fear the most is the one that holds our greatest treasures. Um, and so how do we begin to uncover that which is covered, uh, it's, that which is what the meaning of the word apocalypse is, to uncover that which is um, the word apocalypse is to reveal, to uncover. And so how do we create a situation where we don't have to wait for an event to shatter our lives and to explode things into awareness? How do we instead 
practice flexibility and awareness so that when that Uranus transit happens, what it does is it confirms the fact that we are actually free from our emotional baggage. We are actually individuated and are not just cause to effect. We actually have freedom of motion, freedom of movement. Things can be either experienced as fate or free will, often or maybe always there are a combination of those two things. Mm-hmm. So you, you said that you are an Aries, and I'd like to talk about sun sign astrology, but just to finish up this subject, are there any, do you have any planets around your sun? Oh, just a few. Just a few. So <laughs> when Uranus was traveling through Aries for those, what, three years? Yeah, actually, Uranus was Uranus spends about seven years in each sign because it's an eighty-four year cycle. Right. Twelve times eighty-four is twelve times seven is eighty-four. Um, but um, and now again, we're talking about transits. So yeah. Uranus is now about a year and a half or two into its seven-year run um, through the sign of Taurus. Prior to that, it was in a seven-year run through the sign of Aries. And yes, as a person who has the Sun, Mercury, Venus, Mars, all clustered in the middle degrees of Aries, and in my natal chart are are actually wired with a fair amount of um, of of stress. I like to call it creative stress, right. because as we know from psychology, that stress is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's just not handling it is mm-hmm. a bad thing. Mm-hmm. That stress is the creative force. Whether we're training for the Olympics and we have that no pain, no gain thing going on in our head, or whether we're doing creative mental work, that stress is actually um, an initiating, it's a motivational factor. Mm -hmm. So yes, when the planet Uranus was moving through my chart and 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 exactly um, meeting up with um, with each of those planets, the Sun, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, um, and at the same time um, stressing other planets in my chart, right. yes, my life went through huge and dramatic changes and shifts. Um, and and actually retrospectively, um, I they were not shifts that I would have expected at all. They were, they were, uh, but they brought out stuff that ultimately um, gave me more self. Um, what's the word I'm going to look for here? Um, self awareness and 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 sovereignty. They uh, um, they they gave me more agency over my own life. And here's the key word: whether I wanted it or not. Right. <laughs> and it depends on which house the planet is transiting, which will tell you what areas of your life will be affected by that, that, that energy. That is true. But here we have to be careful, at okay. least for me. Um, and again, for your non-astrological listeners, <clears throat> for your non-astrological listeners, mm-hmm. um, houses are kind of like signs in as much as there are 12 of them, but they denote areas or circumstances in our life. Um, a, a sign I think of is like the country a planet lives in. So if you're born with, we're going to just jump to sun sign astrology okay. and then back again. If you are born um, in early May or late April, you were born with the sun in Taurus, which means that the sun, which is the vitality or energizing factor of, of a chart, was born in the country of Taurus, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were born with, the, with, with um, let's say, the planet Mars, 
which is the physical planet in the sign of Gemini, then Mars vibrates, that's the energy, the planets are energies, vibrates as if it was trained um, by the country and the culture of Gemini, which is kind of uh, um, movement. Um, so each planet and each sign has its own archetypal mythology. The houses are, they correspond to the signs, first house, Aries, second house, Taurus, etc. But they're determined by a combination of the time of day and the time of year. I don't want to get into the mathematics of this now, but the but the houses have to do with areas of life. Um, and so, yes, a planet by where it's transiting both by sign and personalized by what house it happens to be moving through in your chart. One of the problems is that there are 35 different ways that modern astrologers will calculate the lines between the houses, those called cusps, the, mm. uh, the edges. And so um, I think that the houses and the calculations that we have given to us from antiquity um, are just another part of astrology that needs a lot more testing. Yeah. They work. How, I mean, no astrologer will say that houses don't have any validity, but but you put 10 astrologers in a room and you, and you just say the word houses and you can sit back and watch an argument ensue. Right over which one is correct. And again, we come back to the universe doesn't conform to our easy one-to-one -one correspondences, the cause and effect linearity, mm -hmm. the fact that this is that. No, things are maps and they have, um, in the quantum realm, they have infinite possibilities of how they are manifested. Um, uh, things are multivalent, meaning that, that they connect in, in, in infinite numbers of ways and we don't get to um, know what they are prior to them actually unfolding in time. And often it's the fear of what might happen that precipitates the worst scenarios. Um, you know, yeah. it's the that which we persist will, you know, that which we resist will persist. And again, it has to do with burying things and making it unconscious. And this is the beauty of the whole um, 20th century, actually beginning in the 1890s, actually. But the whole 20th century deep dive into the uncertainty of quantum physics and the uncertainty of the dream world, the unconscious, the Freudian, Jungian, um, you know, psychoanalytic individuation process, because all of that is about making the unconscious conscious, which gives us more choices, which gives us agency of, of, of having more free will. But the problem with the question of fate and free will is this. It's a closed system. And even though you can say after driving at full speed toward the edge of a cliff and then hitting the brake and not going over the cliff saying, I exerted free will. How do you know that wasn't already in the program? Right. And this is the tricky thing. Right. There's no, there's no answer. Mm -hmm. Well, going back to the houses, um, yes. that kind of stopped me in my tracks when I was studying astrology, when I realized that there were different house systems, which placed my natal planets in different houses. And I am a Look, I, I have a very strong sensation function. I am originally a black and white thinker. I am trained as a scientist. I want things to be exact. I want things to be black and white. And when I found that out, I kind of walked away a little bit from astrology because I thought, well, which is it? Which is true? Because when I first studied astrology, 
my instructor used Placidus. Well, then I had my first natal consultation with Robert Hand. He had just started using whole sign houses and he was 100% convinced whole sign houses. So it threw me for a loop. <laughs> but I do, I do want to say, going back to sun sign astrology, the point that I try to hammer home every time I discuss astrology is that there is more to it than where the sun was when you were born. The moon was also in a sign. Venus was in a sign. Mercury was in a sign. And those planets make aspects to each other. So that's all important. It isn't just where the sun was. Yeah, sun sign astrology is actually a uh, relatively new creation mm -hmm. that had to do with astrology meeting the printing press. And the first use of sun sign astrology was in the early 1900s by a British man named Alan Leo, who popularized astrology of his time um, by writing about people's sun signs, because the only thing that we can know by knowing someone's birth date yeah. Um, is what sign the sun was in because our calendar is a solar calendar. And so therefore, every year on April 22nd, the date of this recording, the sun is every year in the sign of Taurus. So that way we know if someone's birthday, we can we, we can tell where their sun is. And the sun is obviously the brightest, uh, loudest, largest um, piece of a chart because it is the center of our little system here. Um, but but sun sign astrology, again, I come back to the signs as nations. If, if you put me in a room with 10 people and uh, three of them were born in New York, let's say nine people because the math works out easier. Okay. Um, and three of them were born in New York City. Um, three of them that were born in rural India and three of them were born in El Paso, Texas. Um, I could make generalizations about those people just knowing where they came from. And in fact, if I talked to them for a minute or two, I could pretty accurately put them in the right grouping and know that this guy's from New York and this woman is from India and this guy, you know, et cetera. Okay. But I know nothing about their lives individually. I know something about their 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 generalized energetics. And that's what sun sign astrology is. Look, I made a bulk of my living for nearly 20 years writing mass market books for Barnes and Noble, writing a column for tarot.com that was carried on um, on Google when they were doing content, yahoo.com, um, LA Times, uh, Huffington Post, AOL. My column was read by tens of millions of people. Mm -hmm. I know about sun sign astrology and I think it has validity, but it's only the gateway drug, if you will, right. to horoscopic astrology. It's the thing that make people makes people curious as to, wait a minute, there's more here than meets the eye. And as you said quite eloquently, that when you were born, not only was the sun um, you know, in Taurus, but the moon, which goes around once a month from Earth's point of view, was in any one of the 12 signs because every month the moon spends about two and a half days in each sign. And the moon is much closer to the Earth than the sun. Um, and it turns out in astrology, though, that distance, proximity, 
and size both may not matter because we have Pluto, this little tiny object two billion miles away, that anyone doing astrology and watching Pluto move slowly through the sky can is confronted um, again and again and again by its consistency of how it connects and relates to events here on Earth. But but the chart itself consisting of the Sun and the Moon and Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, other uh, points of intersections of these planets called nodes and, and asteroids and, and other points, it, it makes... It, when planets interact with one another, it's like two mo- notes on a musical scale. And in fact, <clears throat> when you play two notes together, that's called a chord, two or more notes. In a stra- and, and a chord in, in spatial geometry is the connection of any two points on a circle. Well, planets are just on a circle. They're on cycles. And when we have aspects, they're like the chords. They're the sounds that the planets make. So if you have two planets, let's say the archetype of Uranus that is making a harmonious chord with your sun, well, you're someone who might um, might work with the concept and ideas of unpredictability and change and invention and innovation very, very smoothly. Whereas someone else who has the planet Uranus at a hard angle, a, a discord, a 90 degree angle, that that person might find the confrontation of change much more difficult to deal with and much more upsetting. And, so, and here, here, let me just jump in because that was Please. a great example and another question that I wanted to ask you. Earlier, you mentioned, okay, I am a Taurus, meaning my son was in Taurus when I was born. And Taurus is a fixed earth sign, kind of resistant to change, doesn't like change very much. But then you just mentioned how if the planet Uranus makes a favorable, harmonious aspect to the sun, which in my natal chart, it does. Absolutely. Uranus is in Virgo. And in my chart, Uranus is at I think 11 degrees, my son is at 13 degrees, they form a trine. So that And would a trine indicate- is a is is it's like a do sol, it's like the open sound of Gregorian chants that sounds very harmonious. So so yes, your you know, your your Uranus is harmonized with your son, which basically doesn't change the fact that you like things stable, but you get a real charge also out of being the innovator, out of confronting um, things which are outside of the realms of some people's thoughts and ideas. And obviously, this is something could dig in quite a bit further. But what you're saying is actually very true. Yeah. And so there, where I also came to struggle with astrology is how do you put those two things together? Because they're saying kind of something opposite. Because the trine between the sun and Uranus is saying that there is a harmonious flow and ease of the unexpected and having to make changes. But that sun Venus rooted in Taurus is pretty fixed and stubborn and doesn't like change. So well, it that's doesn't like I- cha- it, it doesn't like change unless it's changing. Then it doesn't like to stop change. You see, Taurus is Taurus is not just resistance to change. Um, Taurus is momentum, and if you're not, it's Newton's third. Taurus is Newton's third law. An object at rest tends to stay at rest unless acted on by an outside force. Right. And an object in motion tends to stay in motion unless acted on by an outside force. Taurus likes inertia. 
And Uranus, you're right, does like to um, shake up that inertia. And and of course, your chart is more complicated than just the simple relationship between those two planets. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it says that perhaps in your life, you've developed a way of moving through life that gives you tools to integrate these new radical innovative ideas with more consistency um, and less disruption than someone who resists them always and then can be struck by lightning when they finally realize, oh my God, this is the way it is. It might be that, that you have stabilized or at least um, strive to stabilize that um, eclectic, erratic, eccentric, um, polarized energy of Uranus as and, and taken that black and white. You see, black and white, I, I always think of uh, um, of uh, the song that Paul McCartney did with Stevie Wonder yes. um, years ago, uh, Ebony and Ivory. Right. You know, black and white create the most amazing harmonies on the keyboard, and yet they're opposites. And so I would suggest that that they are that that we are all um, bundles of contradictory energy, mm -hmm. and it's how we learn to. Again, I'm going to use the word yoga, not from a standpoint of sitting in postures, although that might be useful, mm -hmm. but from a standpoint of the word yoga comes from the word yug, which is the um, the yoke of an oxen, and in a way, we're all like having this force of the power of Taurus, of the ox, of the oxen. And, and by learning how to harness it, we're not just wasting the energy or, or erratically being stubborn for no reason at all. Instead, we're learning how to work with the pulses of hold, release, of inhale, of exhale. And I think that, that again, when we come back to the um, Jungian process of individuation, it's how do I learn to contain these um, um, these differences, these multitudes. I think of Bob Dylan, who's um, uh, a, a Gemini, um, which is the uh, erratic, clever, uh, wordy, con self-contradictory person like Walt Whitman was a Gemini. Um, and Bob Dylan, who is actually has more planets in Taurus than anywhere else that sucker has been showing up you know, for 50 years. <laughs> I mean, there's a Taurus energy of the stuff, but, but he has that Uranian different effect, you know, he, but, but here's the thing is that he just released uh, a brand new song that he just wrote. Um, and the song is the name of the song is I contain multitudes. Mm. And it's a Walt Whitman quote from Leaves of Grass. And so the point is that we are all full of these contradictions. And this is the magic of the process of what, um, of what Jung called individuation and what depth psychologists have called the therapeutic process. It's how do we make those contradictions visible so we can begin to figure out ways to harness the power to yoke the oxen instead of always being whipped around at the wrong end of the stick or being held captive to the tug of war that we don't even know who's holding the other end of the rope. That's the magic of astrology. Yeah. And I think that that's a great example. I used myself as an example here so that the listeners could just get a little bit of a taste 
of what an astrologer can see because Rick, you and I know each other, but we don't know each other very well. I mean, we haven't, yeah, we haven't really hung out and spent time together. Um, we just met briefly, um, at UAC, which that, that was incredible because then Darby Costello came by and I got to meet her and Henry Seltzer. And that was just kind of a magical moment for me, but the listeners just got a taste of what an astrologer, the insights that you could give them by you looking at their birth chart and what people, what what you need to give Rick would be your birth date, the t- exact time you were born, that's really important, and the place. And most birth certificates do list the time of birth. It depends on where don't. you were born. Yeah, yeah but yeah. some don't. And ask your mom. If it's not listed, ask your mom. She was there. Uh, what time you were born. And But that specific time is really important. Would you tell us a little bit about why we yes, need that? I, yeah, yes. So it's not the time that's significant. It's the combination of the time and the place. And the place. Okay. Because again, as Einstein clearly showed, time and space are intertwined there mm-hmm. they, they are different expressions of the same thing great point it's back it's back it's back to fate and free will they're different expressions of the same thing particle and wave time and space and so knowing the time and this and the space the place in which you were born what that allows us to do is it allows us to calculate the horizon and and the horizon in astrology is the most personalized point in one's natal or birth chart in fact the word horoscope technically means your horizon and let me explain by that Um, now let me explain that that the the derivation of the word horoscope comes from the same root as the words telescope and microscope. The word scope is a Greek word that means to have a view of or perspective on. Um, a, a, a telescope sees things tele, far away, scope. A microscope sees things that are small. A horoscope sees the hour. And in fact, before we had computers, before we had wall clocks, calendars, the ancients would know the hour by what planet was rising at the time of birth or where the sun was in relationship to the eastern horizon. Technically, the eastern horizon point, which astrologers call the ascendant, or the sign that is on the ascendant, the rising sign, because every day the sun rises, every day every planet rises. Well, that's really an optical illusion. Bucky Fuller pointed out (laughs) that the sun doesn't rise, that it comes into sight. And he said we needed to change our language from sunrise to sunset and sunset to sunclips. Now, that aside, the fact is that our rising sign is determined by where we are on the planet, the time of year connected to the time of day. And so the technical use of the word horoscope or hour marker or view of the hour is what your ascendant is. So that if you, and this you need not just the time of day, but the time and place. Now, having said that, 
as a longtime practicing astrologer, I can tell you that I've had many clients who do not know their time of day. In fact, I've had clients from some parts of the world where they don't even know their time. They don't even know their day of birth. They know they were born around the, you know, 4th of May, but it may have been the 2nd and it may have been the 5th because birth certificates are typically filed or filled out afterwards. It's anecdotal. And and the universe is is holographic. Uh, the more we can drill down, the more detail we have. But the fact of the matter is that if I know your sun sign, your birthday without knowing anything else, I can basically go to work as an astrologer. If I know within 24 hours uh, your, your birthday, um, I have a bit of the hologram that I can work with. And yet, if I'm going to apply my full um, uh, um, uh, toolbox of, of techniques, Mm -hmm. um, then I'm going to need a combination of the, um, date, the time of day and the place. So I can calculate what point was on the Eastern horizon, the Western horizon, what point was directly, I wouldn't say directly overhead, but what point was, was the, what astrologers call the mid heaven, which is the point that the sun would be at at high noon, but understanding that in the winter time that isn't directly overhead mm-hmm. because of the of the warping, um, because we live on on a on a globe. So yes, um, that is all necessary, um, and the reason that is necessary is that even though you may be a um, Taurus, your sun is in Taurus, the 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 energy of that fixed Earth vitalizes your chart. Um, you come off to people, you appear like the sunrise makes that day appear. You appear like your rising sign or your ascendant, which is not who you are. Um, that's your sun. It's not how you feel. That's your moon. It's not how you think. That's your Mercury. Mm-hmm. It's not how you what you're attracted to. That's Venus. It's not how you get what you want. That's Mars. And I'm simplifying all these energies. They're all way more complicated than that. But that's how the complexity begins to come into being. Mm-hmm. And so what would you tell people now that don't have their birth time that are still interested in astrology? They can still get something out of it, right? Oh, absolutely. However, you know, if we go back a, a couple hundred years ago, the only people who had their full birth charts done were queens and kings and emperors mm-hmm. because it would take someone days to actually do the sightings of the planets and figure out mathematically and use spherical triangles and logarithms and, and mathematics and or interpolation to actually calculate the chart. Um, and then to figure out all the angles. And I can get that exact same information in about three seconds by just entering in a date, a time, and a place, hitting a button, and I have it. And anyone can do that. And and there are many sites on the internet that will allow someone to calculate their chart. Um, uh, One of the premier sites, although there are many, um, is a site called astro.com or astrodienst. Um, it's run or owned by a PhD physicist in um, in Switzerland, um, and um, 
Uh, and you basically can have your chart calculated and have tools to d begin deciphering it. One does not need an astrologer to begin to explore where your ascendant or rising sign is or what houses or signs your planets are in. You might need or want a competent astrologer to help put together the contradictions. But again, I come back to the fact that Jung who was not just casually interested in astrology. Jung was driven, motivated, fascinated by astrology. And, and in fact, um, for me, I came into astrology in a different route than many people do. Many people, I know many of my contemporaries, get into astrology because something happens in their life and falls apart. They go to an astrologer, they go, holy crap, this is amazing. And then they that tumbles them, excuse me, Right. Down the path. Yeah. For me, I was fascinated from my teen years um, by Freud and Jung and 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 esoteric um, concepts and things that were outside of the realm of the um, of the culture and the religions that I was that I was uh, brought up in. Um, and when I got to college and became a psychology um, major, I have a B.A. in psychology. I devoured um, the depth psychologists and, the, you know, from Freud to Jung to Wilhelm Reich to Fra Eric Fromm to to the um, to um, ju just a whole variety of, of, of things that have come out of that era. Mm -hmm. And when and I began also being interested in astrology, but I never made a connection between the two of them until mm -hmm. I was handed a book by. Um, by a man named Dane Rudjar, mm -hmm. and the book was called The Astrology of Personality, mm -hmm. a reevaluation of astrology in light of 20th century psychology and philosophy. And, and I, as I read this book, I was stunned. I mean, I was 20 years old, and I was just stunned that Jung's entire system was astrological. Even though it, I mean, you know, we think of Jung as Jungian psychology. Well, Jung didn't call his psychology Jungian astrology any more than Freud called his work Freudian, or for that matter, that Jesus called his work Christian. Right. I mean, they were just doing their work. Right. In fact, as we know, Freud called his work psychoanalysis. Uh, Wilhelm Reich called his work character analysis, and um, and Jung called his his work um, individual psychology or the psychology of four types or analytical psychology, and his an analytical psychology was based upon this concept of four types: thinking, feeling, intuiting, perceiving which of course have become four of the pieces of the um, spectrum that people now know as the Myers-Briggs um, you know, analysis. But, but what people don't realize is where Jung got fire earth, um, I'm sorry, where Jung got thinking, feeling, intuiting, and perceiving from. And he writes about it. I mean, I've read his writing. He got this from the Greek material, which was the humors in the body the biles that created different body types and that fire is intuition and that earth is sensation and water is feeling and earth is sensation. And so his psychology of four types is the underpinning to the division of fourfoldness in astrology of the four elements, fire, earth, air, and water. And each of those elements manifest in one of three ways. And that is either beginning, 
middle holding the energy or transforming into what's next, and that becomes cardinal, fixed, and mutable. And so every sign in astrology is a combination of its element and its modality. Um, Aries is cardinal, initiating fire, intuition, energy, action. Um, Taurus is fixed earth. Fixed is holding the position. That's where we get the, you know, the stubborn, the, you know, stubborn as a bull, (laughs) you know. Um, and so that's fixed, but it's also earth in as much as it's down to earth. It's practical. It has to do with that, which I can perceive that, which I can sense, um, in astrology, every sign is connected or related to a planet. Um, Aries, for example, is related to Mars, the God of war. And so if someone was an Aries sun sign, I'd want to know where's Mars in their chart because Mars is actually doing the work. (laughs) <laughs> you know, of the fa- of their sun sign. You know, if um, if someone is a Taurus, I want to know where Venus is in their chart because Venus is the planet that's associated with Taurus, and therefore Venus in someone's who is a Taurus sun sign's chart, that's going to tell us more about that person, and so on and so on. And the complexity never ends. I'm amazed that after studying, working with, using astrology. Not every day, but nearly every day of my life for the past 50 years Mm -hmm. that I realized today that I know less than I've ever known compared to how much I want to know about it. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I feel that way about astrology. I feel that way about Jung. The more I know, the less I realize I know. And wow, um, not sure where to go after that. Uh, what <laughs> uh, I'm just looking through our notes because I came up with some notes ahead of time that I your sent notes you. were brilliant. We haven't gone to any of those. We things haven't gone to about. any of this. None no. of it. No, we we can do another session sometime if you're so inclined. That would be obviously. great. Can, can you go a little longer now? Or I, I can. I you can. can. Yeah. So I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the current state of the world. And <laughs> oh uh, my god! So I can't say I'm surprised. Because all of last year, all of 2019, just about every monthly forecast episode you did, which again, I want to tell the listeners, you used to record them live at Soul Food Coffee House and then put them up on your YouTube channel. But now since everybody's in lockdown, you're recording them at home in your home studio but they are available for free on your YouTube channel. And I will have, yes, I will have links to all of your things on the episode page at speakingofyoung.com. Um, but just briefly, it's youtube.com slash jjower. Is that your? Yes, it is. And that's because my late uh, astrology partner, Jeff Jower, and I um, started this. And yeah. I've kept that just in memory in, in memory of his work. I love it. Yeah. And we all miss Jeff. Um, he was brilliant, too. So what I was saying was that in every monthly forecast episode, you were talking about last year, you were talking about January of 2020. I was even actually go the first time I wrote Further and back. this article is okay. still available. The mm-hmm. first time I wrote about January of 2020 was in October of 2001 yeah. after the 9/11 um uh situation. Mm-hmm. Um uh and because that happened at an event, an astrological event 
that had to do with the planet Saturn and Pluto that was repeated or at least re-resonated uh, in January of 2020. And, and when Saturn moved into the sign of Capricorn in December of 2017, um, in that monthly um, in that monthly forecast that I did, which is still online, I recorded it in November of 2017. I said that Saturn is moving into the sign of Capricorn. It will be there for about two and a half years, but Saturn only has one appointment on his calendar um, in this two, in this period of time. The only thing that matters as Saturn moves through the sign. Um, of um, of of Capricorn is his meeting with the big guy, with the Lord of the Hell Realms. Um, Hell Realms is a metaphor for the unconscious, and that would be Pluto. And in fact, um, going through 2019, as I began to do forecasts, both in writing and um, on podcasts and YouTube videos, um, I was saying back in November and December of 2019. No, I'm sorry, of, of back in December. November, December of 2018, um, I, I was saying that the singular most important event of 2019, the singular most important event of 2019 occurs on January 12th, 2020. That was the line that has come yeah. back to me that I can't tell you how many times I said that. And of course, it turns out that the first recorded labeled death from um, this um, COVID 2019 virus um, occurred within 24 hours of that um, alignment of Saturn, the planet of boundary, and Pluto, the planet of dis integration and deconstruction of boundary. And I would contend that the deeper metaphysical meaning of what's going on now um, is not about the virus. The virus is, as we would say um, in medicine, the symptom, not the disease, um, that often we are, we are as a culture, as a society, we're aimed at, at symptom suppression or symptom elim elimination. You go to the doctor with a headache and they perform a headectomy and say you're cured right. because you, you know, the, the pain is gone from the headache because you don't have a head anymore. By the same token, and please don't read me wrong, I'm not making any less of the intensity of this particular virus, but the virus is not is 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 not the event. The virus is the messenger. The virus is uh, the symptom of a deeper disease that has to do with Saturn boundary Pluto disintegration, building a wall between the United States and Mexico um, is not going to prevent us from dealing with this invasion through our body's defenses. In fact, neither is quarantine. Uh, and I'm not saying that it's not a good thing to do to quote unquote, flatten the curve. I mean, we have words in our vocabulary, like flatten the curve and social distancing mm -hmm. that six months ago, no one would have had any idea of what, you know, what they would have come to mean. But the point is that we're all dealing with the real contagion here. The real epidemic pandemic is a pandemic of fear. And, and Jung wrote about this in the last book he wrote before he died, um, little, a, a little booklet almost, I don't know, maybe 130 pages long called The Undiscovered Self. 
in which he made the claim that the solution um, to war that that would never be found by politicians, um, treaties are not going to not going not going to create world peace. The only way we're going to create world peace is by the salvation of the souls living within the world, because war was basically a social projection of the unresolved anger and fear and, and so on that's that's in the unconscious. There you go. And 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 of course this would. And I remember reading this as a college student in 1970, um, realizing, oh, he's talking about Mahayana Buddhism. In other words, in, in Buddhism, there are different schools of Buddhism. And in Mahayana Buddhism, one of the basic concepts that differentiated itself from other forms of Buddhism um, is, and this is totally my words, is no one gets off until everyone gets off. Meaning that that it's not just about doing the individual work and getting off the wheel of life and becoming enlightened and liberated, because we can't be enlightened and liberated if we're living in a world that's not enlightened and not liberated, that we are part of what's external, external and internal, as above, so below, the within of things is as the without of things. Mahayana Buddhism basically says we all need to be, uh, we all need to reach salvation if anyone is going to really be you know, reach salvation individually. And that's what Jung was saying. And so what we have now going on in the world is we have this epidemic of fear of people realizing that the boundaries they've built between them, their own individual consciousness and their suppressed and repressed fears, their psyche, are basically coming to them from the outside in the form of an alien invader um, that is actually a zombie. You know, if I hear one more person say something about killing the virus, you can't kill a virus. It's never been alive. A virus is considered to be inanimate. It's basically um, a, a program. It doesn't have any life forms. It replicates itself mechanically only when it's inside something that's alive, that a virus is not alive. Bacteria are alive. Um, but but viruses are not. So viruses being not alive, they're like zombies. We're being eaten by this zombie apocalypse because um, – but it's not the virus that's the problem. The What's the problem is the fear. What's the problem is the suppression of how we don't take care of our own individual health, how we – how we have suppressed anger and resentment and worry and and those things become weakened immune systems and and I'm just amazed at the apocalypse, meaning the revealing, the uncovering of the truth that the United States government, most governments, the World Health Organization, the CDC, and certainly the uh, medical pharmaceutical complex is not interested in health. <laughs> They're interested in the capitalistic um, uh, making money off of uh, eliminating symptoms but not curing the underlying cause. We need the Jungian type depth psychology to be applied culturally and socially um, and um, and here we would slip into the realms of what's now become called transpersonal psychology or liberation psychology or even the work of Wilhelm Reich whose first book was The Psychology of Mass Fascism, which is about how 
you know, we accept these external authorities, think Saturn here, um, because we are in a state of um, of suppression and repression and don't even know it. And so we are allow ourselves the lack of autonomy, autonomy allows ourselves to be governed or managed or ruled by top down. And I would say that what's really going on now with this virus, with Saturn, the planet of boundaries, aligning with Pluto, the planet of dis integration is that we've stepped into into the bardo states into the unconscious realms into the dream state what's true okay this is a really basic thing normally as we go through life you being a taurus you know you want to know what's real and what's not real and i would suggest that right now the the division line which used to be saturn between what was real and what what's not real that's gone that there is no real and unreal in the conscious everything just is there's no past, present, and future. Everything just is. And we've now externalized through projection, through technology even, our unconscious minds. And we're now realizing the fact that no one knows what's going on. No one is in control. Whoever has the truth doesn't have the truth. And I don't care what that truth is and how valid it appears to be, that it's way more complicated than it seems. And it's way more simple. And the simplicity is has to do with self-realization individuation and that's my short version of my what the hell is going on these days rap <laughs> and so what do we do from where do we go from here what do we do now well, I, I think I think we work on two levels. And, and this has always been, for those people who know my work, I often close any lecture, um, most lectures with, um, you know, the saying, think globally, act locally, which on Earth Day today, we're hearing a bunch of, I always say, think cosmically, act locally. And the and the, and and that little rap that I just did, I think is important. It's not that yeah. it's not that this is what's going on. It's really just an opening thought provoker for a conversation that we all could be having. And that's great. But think cosmically and act locally. What does that mean? Um, I, I like to quote Ram Das, who is quoting a story about Mohammed, who one day at a market came across a man who said, um, who said to Mohammed, um, I trust in Allah. Um, do I, I'm going into the market. I don't have to tie my camel, do I? Because Allah will take care of it. And Mohammed said, trust in Allah and tie your camel. Yes. And what I and, and, and I think my advice to everyone and I'm following it the best I can myself. And that is that trust that the universe is playing out as it should be. Trust that whatever our fears are and that what we don't get in some way has to do with a larger issue. But at the same time, tie your goddamn camel, meaning, you know, quarantine yourself if that's what you need to do, if that's what you can do. Mm -hmm. Wash your hands. More than that, more than that is do what you can do to build your immune system. You know, why isn't in the two trillion dollars that the government has passed or more now for for, you know, for this whole uh, pandemic? Why isn't every person in the country being issued vitamin C, echinacea, elderberry, andrographis, zinc? I mean, there's a right. list of things. And yet we don't look at this as a personal issue. We look at it as an external invader. Yeah. There's no such thing as external. You know, the, you know it, it, what's out there is not out there. It's in here. The, the two are one and the same. So what do we do in this? There's only one thing we can do, and that's tie our camels. 
That is take care of our personal lives, clear up our own individual misconceptions, find the truth, even if it means going into the plutonic hell realms and not knowing what the hell is going on. At the same time, we can look at the outside and do what we need to do out there to work on transforming the whole thing. We're working on two levels. We obviously need to get through crisis, and so we are in a state of crisis management. But at the same time, my greatest fear, and yes, I take this whole thing very seriously, Mm -hmm. but my fear is not that I will die from this, although I am certainly in the um, um, statistical realms. Um, you know, I'm 71 years old. Um, but my greatest fear is not personal death. My greatest fear in this is that when this crisis is over, we'll go back to the way things were. Yeah. Because that's the dis-ease. Right. And we'll have crisis after crisis, yeah. just like someone coming to a therapist, to an analyst will have. They'll have crisis after crisis after crisis mm-hmm. until they face the problem, until they begin to get it right. So that's what we need to do at this time. We need to begin looking for the truth. We need to begin and, – and, and we need to know that there is no truth out there that the truth we're going to find is internal and that the fear that we're feeling is a fear of invasion of boundary and total at loss. And how do I protect myself from something that's invisible and non-perceptible? And that's kind of my nickel shot on this. Very well said, Rick. I appreciate that. Um, That was the best thing I've heard so far on this. You ready to wrap it up? Ready to wrap it up. All right, you stay with me while I read the outro. Okay. All right, please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J U N G dot com, for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or tune in. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to my guest, Rick Levine, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. Is that a wrap? That's a wrap. Do you need to go yet? Uh, I'm just going to stop the recording. Good. <laughs>